0: Hi, welcome to theanalysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. The events of January 6th have exposed a naked truth about American democratic institutions. The United States, as the global model of democracy, is a fairy tale. That decades of Cold War education and propaganda has created in the American public mind. The reality is a system in turmoil maintained by violence. Four years of Trump, ending in an attempted coup and the storming of Congress on January 6th, have shown how easily this model democracy can unravel, how it teeters towards fascismization. Now joining us to discuss the global consequences of January 6th and the mass basis of fascism in the United States is Gerald Horne. Gerald holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moores Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, most recently, Storming the Heavens, African Americans and the Early Fight for the Right to Fly, and The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th-century North America and also, and most recently, the bittersweet science, racism, racketeering, and the political economy of boxing. Thanks for joining us, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. So, Gerald, let's start with some of the international consequences of what happened on the 6th, and and then let's dig in more into this idea that there's a real mass basis for fascism in the United States and and what I'm going to ask you what you make of this uh, Senate impeachment but let's start more internationally with a particular focus on China.
1: Well, appropriately enough for a pandemic, I think the events of January 6 unmasked to a certain extent uh, the United States and the state structures. There are so many questions that need to be answered. However, what we do know already is quite disturbing. For example, we do know, according to Yahoo News, that just before January 6th, there was $500,000 worth of Bitcoin cryptocurrency transferred into the virtual wallets of some prominent right-wingers in the United States from sources in France, and this points up to these transatlantic, indeed global networks of white supremacists and neo-fascists who should not come as a surprise since those of us like myself who've studied the United States' relationship with apartheid South Africa recognize that during their pre-1994 era, there was a ramified network supporting apartheid South Africa in some ways with headquarters right here in the United States. And so some of the reportage that's emerging uh, points to the United States being sort of an exporter, uh, not only of right-wing ideology, but capital to support Right-wing forces across the globe, particularly in Western Europe, who in return scratched the back of the United States of America. Then, where's Steve? Where's Steve Bannon's been very active? Well, of course, uh, Steve Bannon has been ultra-active with regard to this. But I think with regard to the unmasking, it's delivered a stinging black eye uh, to Washington. Uh, That is to say, how can Washington credibly? Uh, criticize other countries for so-called democracy violations in light of January 6. There was an article in the press the other day about how Biden had this concoction, this plan for so-called D10, democracy 10, democracy 12, which is sort of an anti-China cabal, uh, including the G7 and then other nations like South Korea. But that I hope will be put on ice because how can the United States credibly begin to give lectures about democracy in light of uh, January 6th. And then the 1%, the economic royalists, it seems to me, have been placed in a corner. That is to say, they had an electoral contraption, which worked quite well for them. Uh, there was a sort of united front, of uh, Euro-American working class, middle class, casting their ballots for the, one, for the GOP, who then go to Washington and have giveaways for the 1% and tax cuts like December 2017, obviously the foot soldiers were not doing as well. And so voila, you have this attempted insurrection, this coup on January 6th. And so it seems that the 1% either A, they need a new electoral coalition uh, or something else. And the something else of course is the Biden coalition which relies heavily upon 90% Black votes. The problem from our point of view, or from my point of view, is that because the Black community and its leadership and organizations have been hounded and harassed into not engaging on foreign policy, Martin Luther King denounces the Vietnam War one year, is assassinated the next. Paul Robeson takes the United States, the United Nations in 1950, and then has his passport taken, driven into seclusion, into virtual bankruptcy. And so the Black community in 2021 is not as engaged on the foreign policy front, which gives Mr. Biden and his team more latitude in that sphere, which makes the Biden coalition quite useful for the 1%. And already we see what's happening, because if you look at the climate change agenda, which I do not quarrel with, what it also has is an ancillary aspect, which is that there can be less of a focus on nations like Saudi Arabia, perhaps even Iran, that uh, have fossil fuels, let's hope Venezuela as well. And you already see in the National Security Council staffing in the White House that the Biden team, they're downsizing the analysts with regard to the so-called Middle East, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf monarchies, et cetera and exponentially expanding the analysts with regard to China. So that then has a sort of a, a circle of virtue for the Biden administration. They can put on their green credentials of clean energy when actually part of the agenda is to have this focus on China. So January 6th, in, in some ways, I think will be seen by future historians as a hinge moment, a turning point, in terms of the evolution, if not devolution, of U.S. imperialism. Mm.
0: Well, last time we talked, we ended by saying we were going to talk more about China. Uh, so maybe we, let, let's do let's do that. Um, I, I was struck both by positive and negative uh, in terms of the the signals coming out of the Biden appointees, and during the election campaign, Biden's rhetoric on China. He was practically trying to outflank Trump with the mili- anti-China militancy of his rhetoric. But I, I've noticed something which, I, to me, is a glimmer of something constructive, which Avril Haines, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, even uh, uh, Blinken, when, when asked, is is China an adversary or not? Their answer was, uh, Ch- President Biden is framing this that China is a competitor, a global competitor. And I I thought that's a a better way to frame it than adversary. On the other hand, when you actually read the climate plan that Biden had on his website just before the inauguration, he positions uh, reducing subsidies for fossil fuel as a way to encircle China. In other words get all the countries that are buying into the uh, that might buy into the silk uh, and road initiative and offer them american financing instead of chinese financing and then use that as a leverage against china on fossil fuels as if the americans are so have some, <laughs> have some moral high ground on on the climate stuff over china which is kind of at least so far rather funny
1: Well, what's interesting, the Financial Times of February 1st, 2021, carries an intriguing article that suggests that China is engaged in this chess match, so to speak, and is trying to move the price and the valuation of barrels of oil from the dollar to the renminbi, to their own currency, uh, which could be potentially a a game changer if they move in, in that direction. And obviously... They do not necessarily uh, accept uh, with naivete this green agenda. But I think that with regard to China, it was quite extraordinary, was it not, that on January 20th, the day of the inauguration, that a representative of Taiwan, the rebel province off the southern coast of China, which Beijing claims is its own, was prominently seated uh at the inauguration right behind Mr. Biden. This was something uh, extraordinary. We also know that under uh, Mr. Trump, the predecessor, that Taiwan Semiconductor, which is a major producer of these chips, which go into our smartphones, our laptops, and increasingly into our automobiles, that Taiwan Semiconductor has decided to build one of its biggest plants in Arizona, at the same time, uh, it is being pressured to break relations with the People's Republic of China, which will not be easy, but it's not impossible. At the same time, you see Beijing a shoveling billions into trying to develop its own indigenous chip industry. And uh, I would be the last person to bet against the success of that venture. I also took note of the fact that at the virtual uh, Davos Summit, the World Economic Forum, uh, President Xi Jinping uh, spoke at length about the virtues of multilateralism. Chancellor Merkel of Germany then followed and echoed his words about multilateralism and slapped down the idea of go it alone as rep- represented in America first. I'm sure that the Biden team took note of that. And this comes in the wake, as I think we've talked about, and if not, let's mention it here. The extraordinary uh, multi-billion dollar investment deal between Beijing and the European Union, inked in late December of 2020, Uh, the Biden team objected, apparently it's going to go forward, apparently uh, there's going to be increased investment of China in the German economy in particular, which of course is the locomotive of the entire European Union. Now, there is some loose talk about the European Parliament trying to slap down this deal, but I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen. And hovering above it all, literally, if not figuratively, is the specter of these U.S. planes buzzing the southern coast of China in the channel between Taiwan and South China. That's a very ominous signal. Uh, How would Washington like it? if Chinese planes were buzzing San Francisco, for example. And then if you look at the confirmation hearing of the presumed incoming U.S. envoy to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she was grilled relentlessly by Senator Ted Cruz and other Republicans because she gave a a paid speech at Savannah State College in Georgia, uh, on behalf or at the behest of the Confucius Institute, which of course uh, has entities from the Atlantic to the Pacific and various colleges and universities. Uh, She apologized uh, for (laughs) giving the speech and taking the money. This may be used to deep six her uh, nomination, but it also points up this increasing sort of tension uh, between Beijing and Washington and then capping it all off in the negotiations for the stimulus, the pandemic relief package, uh, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, a Republican, uh, who is one of the moving forces behind this so-called compromise agreement to cut in half the $1.9 trillion that Mr. Biden has proposed, has suggested that it doesn't make any sense to continue borrowing money from the People's Bank of China to fund these relief packages and then simultaneously having an agenda where you're trying to overthrow the Communist Party of China. And I have to say, I I think that Mitt Romney has a point. Uh, The United States is going to have to fish or cut bait. Uh, They're either going to have to raise taxes on the 1% and stop borrowing so much money from the People's Bank of China and then go all in with regard to this encirclement plan, Uh, Which already uh, includes the so-called Quad—Japan, Australia, India, then the United States—and from Mr. Biden's point of view, would also include the so-called D10, D12, the Democracy 10, the Democracy 12. And by the way, uh, myself and friends have a pool going as to when Vice President Kamala Harris will be jetting off to New Delhi, uh, playing the her ethnic heritage. Uh, in India, which of course is going to be a key link with regard to any reasonable plan to encircle China? Well, I think there is no reasonable plan
0: to encircle China in the sense that when push comes to shove, there is no way that American corporations are going to give up on the Chinese market. On the other hand, it's not just the labor they're getting in the manufacturing. Probably more important to them is the ability to sell into the Chinese market. If things get too hostile with China, they're going to get frozen out. And I and I think they're actually even concerned that it goes further than that, which is probably explains the tension over Taiwan and the overall tension. Which is, I was reading an article in uh, that in Foreign Affairs. That the real fear is that over the next decade or two, China will so dominate Asia that China will start pushing the US out of the entire Asian market, not just the potential of being frozen out of China. But what the hell can they do about it? I mean, the Americans simply can't do anything about it. They can, and even the, the, the saber rattling over Taiwan, uh, I talked to Larry Wilkerson a few times about this. He says they, they've done war games. When he was at the Pentagon, and he knows of others since. Uh, every single war game that begins with any level of military confrontation with China always ended in nuclear war. They had to call off the war games. Uh, I, I actually don't think there is a policy that the United States can win at. On the other hand, so, you know, I think the best way usually to start with analyzing foreign policy is domestic politics. And so, you know, maybe a lot of this rhetoric and positioning and all this waving their hands around is because they, they don't want to be outflanked by the Republicans on China. But the reality is, uh, what the hell can they do about it?
1: Well, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I don't see any way out. But then again, I've been wrong before. So don't necessarily bet on my prognostications. Having said that. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, it is striking not only this investment deal, which we just made reference to with regard to the European Union, but leading up to the investment deal, China had this strategy of the 16 plus one, 17 plus one. That's to say all the smaller Eastern European members of the European Union, Croatia, Hungary, etc., they meet on a regular basis. With envoys from Beijing, it's the analog to uh, how Beijing meets on a regular basis with leaders from Africa, for example, or leaders from Latin America, for example. And so, in other words, China has its foot in the door with regard to the European Union, which tends to lead me to believe that it's going to be very difficult in the European Parliament to reverse this investment deal, even if you grant that they have the power. Then there's the regional comprehensive economic partnership, which includes many of the nations of the Asian Pacific. It's China's obvious response to what Mr. Obama had called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Mr. Trump scuttled almost on day one, if not on day one of his administration in January 2017. And this creates one of the largest uh, free trade agreements that we now have on planet Earth. And then, of course, the United States is disadvantaged with regard to trying to uh, twist the arm of the European Union because its chief ally in the higher councils, London, has just engaged in Brexit which has removed it from the higher councils and therefore strengthens the hand of France, uh, which is talking about, quote, strategic autonomy, unquote, quote, unquote, unquote which they n- not only mean in terms of economics, and this investment partnership, but also uh, it would not surprise me if it posed a threat to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, dominated by the United States, particularly since the Europeans and France, not least, have not forgotten the anti-NATO rhetoric of Mr. Trump. And uh, unlike many of our friends on the left, they cannot afford to be naive or unrealistic about U.S. politics. And so therefore, I think that they suspect that in 2022, if not 2024, uh, there could be a return of Trumpism, if not Trump himself, a Trumpism with a youthful face in the form of uh, Jeff uh, Josh Hawley of Missouri, uh, one of the people who instigated the tumultuous events of January 6th or Ted Cruz, but Trump's policies, but engineered a much less jambolic fashion. And so therefore the European Union might decide that it's time to go its own way. And they may decide at the end of the day, it doesn't make that much difference if you're playing number two to Washington or number two to Beijing, you're still number two. And at least with Beijing, you, you get a kind of normalcy with regard to policy and not the frenzy of the Trump years. Uh,
0: and, and in fact, you, you get to do what countries like India used to do when the Soviet Union was more of a, a presence, you know, play the big powers off against each other. Uh, there's an interesting piece in Bla- uh, a research paper done by BlackRock, who I always keep talking about, the big asset management company. And they had a research paper which said that no matter what administration is coming going to be uh, in power, this is prior to the election, November 3rd election, the rivalry between U.S. and China is going to intensify, and countries around the world are going to have to pick sides, says BlackRock. Uh, maybe that's what the Americans think, but I don't think so. I think what you're saying is more correct. The Europeans and others—they're going to play the two off. And uh, and if China's more easier to deal with, especially if there's another crazy back in the White House, uh, then yeah, it's gonna, they're going to get closer to China. I think in the long run, American finance capital and corporate tech, uh, super tech companies and such they got to maintain the access to the Chinese market. It's it's actually worth more or will be worth more to them than the American market is, certainly in terms of growth. Um, So uh, as I said, they're kind of boxed in. and and People like Cruz and these guys, they they can mouth off a lot, and they represent a domestic uh, mass base for a kind of fascist movement in the United States. But in terms of real influence on U.S. foreign policy, other than Biden having to worry about the domestic implications of all this, they don't have any real clout. Uh, so I, I don't. I think Biden. What Biden's saying, I think, is actually the only thing they can do is treat China as a competitor, but not a total antagonist. Uh, American only. Uh, only the U.S. loses from that.
1: Well, the United States is in a corner. Uh, I found it very interesting that President Xi Jinping has enlisted Howard Schultz, the founder and leading stockholder in Starbucks, which, by the way, has thousands of cafes uh, on the Chinese mainland, to be a kind of intermediary (laughs) between himself and Washington. In other words, he's recruiting a car-carrying member of the 1% to carry water for China in Washington. I would also point Your listeners and viewers to a a recent Business Week article about Tesla, Elon Musk. Uh, One of the reasons why Tesla stock has been bid up into the stratosphere is because in some ways, investing in Tesla is a way to get a piece of the Chinese economy because he's heavily implanted on the Chinese mainland. And The article suggested that uh, he's ultimately going to get his uh, pocket picked insofar as there will be an intense study of his engineering operations with regard to those Tesla plants, and then there will be a kind of reverse engineering, and then a Chinese competitor like NIO will then emerge. And so those who were shorting Elon Musk's Tesla on Wall Street Uh, just months ago, which raised his ire and consternation, I think we're on the right track. And the bidding up of his stock, making him supposedly the richest man in the world, uh, I'm I'm not so sure if that's going to last. And you can say the same thing for General Motors, which has just decided, as you know, that it's going to go all electric within about 15 years. Um, It too is heavily invested on the Chinese mainland And I suspect that what's going to befall Tesla is also going to uh, befall General Motors in terms of uh, having their pockets picked, reverse engineering and all the rest. But one of the things I haven't been able to figure out, although I have some speculation, is with regard to Apple, the supposed trillion dollar uh, corporation, uh, which is now in the midst of a battle royal with Facebook. Now, Apple is heavily invested in China. Uh, Facebook thus far, despite the fact that Martin Zuckerberg has uh, has tried to learn Chinese and all the rest, uh, Facebook is generally absent. And so I'm wondering what kind of leverage that will give Apple in terms of this showdown with Facebook. And to come full circle, uh, there has been a lot of talk, as you know, about the deplatforming of Mr. Trump in the wake of January 6th by Facebook and Twitter and all the rest. And some of our civil liberties friends are suggesting that this provides a dangerous president uh, for the rest of us. Uh, Although I know, and perhaps you do too, people have been placed in Facebook jail and Twitter jail. In fact, I have black nationalist friends who say that when they want to talk about white supremacy, they don't write a W. They write two Vs to circumvent the algorithms that that search for white. So in in any case, uh, uh, I'm wondering whether the focus should be on whether or not these uh, platforms like Facebook should be a kind of utility, a public utility with much more public input in terms of their operations that people are concerned about Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey controlling the public square. And I think as well, people need to think about why is it that when there were complaints from Myanmar about Facebook being used to rouse antagonism against the Muslim minority, the Rohingya, that Facebook gave this traditional classic free speech line, well, It's free speech. We can't interfere. But at the first sight of violence on January 6th, January 7th, they deplatformed. Mr. Trump took away his megaphone, took away the Apple, uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, basically ran Parler, the right wing version of Twitter out of business. It seems to me those sorts of comparisons should be made. Why is there one rule For countries like Myanmar and another rule from the United States of America. Uh,
0: I want to switch gears a little bit here, which is there is clearly, and you've been making this point, uh, that the left in the United States has to really kind of face up to the fact that there's a mass basis in terms of large numbers of people that are the basis for a fascist, racist movement. Um, and, and you know, they're clearly more visible now. On January 6th, you could see this sort of organized vanguard of it. Um, the more militant, organized form of it did not show up nearly as strongly as, I think, the Steve Bannons of this world expected. Not only did they expect more people on the Hill on January 6th, but they also thought there would be similar uh, things at uh, state capitals across the country, and it was very interesting. Steve Bannon's uh, YouTube show, before he got thrown off, uh, the next day on January 7th, started with one of his co-hosts saying, he's asked by Bannon, what do you think of what happened yesterday? And his words were disappointed, disappointed, disappointed. (laughs) And and the the word disappointed came up about 30 times over the course of that episode of, of the Bannon show. Uh, But, that being said, 74, 75 million people voted for Trump. Um, A large section of that, I don't know the numbers, uh, are voting for something that is a form of of fascism, really. Um, So you've talked before about the historical or the origins, the development of this. But let's talk a a little bit about that, but more, what do you think should be done about
1: it? (laughs) <laughs> That's a $64 question. I mean, I have a, a number of remedies, but I don't want to sound like some of my liberal friends will always make these proposals with uh, little possibility of these proposals being implemented. But having said that, to go to, to directly to your point, people need to realize that mob rule, mobocracy, is, has been a central feature of the United States for at least 250 years. Uh, that is to say, most folks, I assume, know about mob rule after the U.S. Civil War uh, when Black-influenced governments were overthrown by mobs, uh, such as the Colfax Massacre in Louisiana in the early 1870s in Louisiana, or the overthrow of the Wilmington Black-influenced government in North Carolina in 1898. Uh, with, uh, but even with that, of course, if you look at how the Native Americans were expropriated. Oftentimes, they were expropriated by by mobs, by mobs of, of poor and working class settlers. I'm afraid to say. And so, if you fast forward to 2021, January 6, I found it striking to look at the class makeup of the invaders of the Capitol. Uh, it was the typical sort of multi class formation. That was essential to the construction of settler colonialism in the first instance in North America. Uh, What I mean is the January 6th mob included CEOs, included Olympic athletes, small business persons, a number of military veterans, which I would urge our journalists to look into in more depth, a number of Republican Party office holders from the Atlantic to the Pacific, a number of police officers, firefighters. Uh, lumpen elements, working class elements, et cetera, almost all of European uh, descent. And uh, I found it remarkable that so many of them, including the now notorious Congresswoman Marjorie Greene of Georgia, the QAnon sympathizer, uh, spoke uh, about the 1776 moment that was embedded in January 6th, along with her fellow uh, Georgia congressperson, uh, Jody Heiss. And so these folks were were not just out for a, a Sunday afternoon or a, or a Wednesday afternoon gambit. I mean, if if so, why did they bring bear spray and pepper spray? Why did they have firearms? Why did they have uh, uh, handcuffs? Uh, these plastic ties? Why did they construct a, a gallows on the grounds of Congress? Uh, why did they have gas masks, riot helmets? Uh, why do they have napalm, uh, firearms, etc.? And if you look at the Luke Mogelson video, he's the gentleman from the New Yorker magazine who wrote the article based upon his video and based upon his being in the capital uh, with the invaders. It's apparent that they were seeking the box <laughs> that contained certification that Mr. Biden was the victor. And it's not difficult to imagine a scenario where the box could have been snatched. Fortunately, it was ferreted out of the room before they could capture it. The box is captured, destroyed. Then a compliant Supreme Court rules that uh, where's the evidence of Mr. Biden certification or whatever, And this uh, shambolic coup attempt uh, could have been successful. And speaking of which, it brings me to some of our friends on the left where you began, who spent a lot of time, it seems to me, uh, talking about uh, how this was just just another expression of discontent on the the part of these folks who invaded the Capitol. Even though, of course, as I said, it included CEOs. I'm not sure what a CEO is discontented about. But I think this is part of the underestimation of the strength of the right that you made reference to, and also not understanding the U.S. history that I've just made reference to, which then brings me back to the 1% because the point that I was making a few moments ago is that I do think that the 1% may be reevaluating its electoral choices And I think you begin to see a glimpse of this with regard to what's happening in the culture. Charles Murray, a social scientist who was a co-author of the book The Bell Curve, uh, which suggested that uh, Black people are genetically inferior, Uh, he was part of a cabal that not so long ago (laughs) said that the alleged pathologies of Black America was leading to what Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late senator from New York, called speciation. We're becoming a different species. His latest work attacks the so-called white working class in similar terms. This has been followed up by another conservative, uh, Kevin Williamson of the National Review, founded by the patron saint of conservatism, William F. Buckley. His latest book, Big White Ghetto, basically uh, trucks in the same sort of uh, misinformation and disinformation. And interestingly enough, Joe Scarborough, of Morning Joe fame, MSNBC, the former Republican congressman, now a kind of center-rightist and never-Trumper. Uh, he read one of Kevin Williams' essays, word for word, on his program, excoriating the Trump base in no uncertain terms. And then from Hollywood, you see the recent movie, a uh, Hillbilly Elegy, starring the megastar Glenn Close, which is sort of a cinematic depiction of these alleged pathologies of the Euro-American working class. And so this dumping on the Trump base, and I think Charles Mary is the clearest example. He he, he moves from (laughs) dumping on black people to not dumping on the white poor and the white working class, may be a signal of of where the 1% is going with regard to their renewed electoral strategy.
0: So meaning what? So where, where
1: does that lead them? Well, that means Biden, the Biden coalition, which is noted, uh, is only reliant, or, or, or the Georgia Senate victories, where there was a stunning Black turnout, getting 90% of the vote, getting a minority of the white vote, and that was enough to push uh, both Ossoff and Warnock over the top. Obviously, the same thing happened on the presidential level. But That presupposes something that I'm not sure is in evidence, which is that there will be a massive effort that will be bankrolled by the 1% to keep the Republican legislatures from gerrymandering the congressional districts and engaging in other kinds of dirty tricks to suppress the vote. Now, in that regard, uh, note that the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund just got a $40 million Anonymous gift. Uh, Keep in mind as well that George Soros has been quite active in in backing uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, something that I don't frown upon, although some of my friends do. And so I I think that that may be straws in the wind in terms of where the 1% might be going, uh, but I'm not sure if that'll be enough because the, the Trump base seems to be sticky. They seem to be maniacally wedded to their man. And that, along with dirty tricks, may be enough to allow for a comeback by them in 2022 or 2024. Uh,
0: I think there's a, another factor to add to what you're saying. And I don't think it's been talked about maybe enough. <clears throat> the digital revolution has, I think, transformed the world in many, many ways, including globalization on tech hyper steroids. But it's also American politics, American political parties, the whole process of what's called democracy in the United States. It was never expected that that candidates could raise money without billionaires. Now you're in a situation both on the left and the right, but perhaps more on the right, where a small number of billionaires combined with mass fundraising uh, over the Internet could really change the who can be a viable candidate and how much money can get raised. Like, what is it Trump just raised? What is it, $250 million after he lost the election? Um, the, the 74 million people is a lot of people uh, to donate money. Um, I, I think the American political system, to some extent, is out of the control of the 1%. You know, the, this time when in the back room what he used to call it—I can't remember the name of the back room where they would smoke cigars and pick the candidates—and it's not so easy to arrange everything right now. And you know, we may well see a real split in the Republican Party uh, if the old guard really tries to re- retake control of the Republican Party. And and McConnell and Cheney and those people certainly were, although I don't know—it's already looking like they're failing. Um, they, you know, and if Trump. forms another party, and then we'll see what happens with the Democrats. Uh, If Biden winds up Obama-esque, who knows what will happen? Because if, if, if the right fractures enough, then the left in the Democratic Party doesn't have to have quite the same fear that if they split. Uh, and, and run against the Democrats, uh, that they'll automatically elect Republicans. I, I'm not like saying this is going to happen necessarily, but the, the system's in chaos, and I think one of the reasons it's in chaos is the whole financing uh, has changed because you can get this mass fundraising going, which never existed until just a couple of decades ago, and even recently to have this kind of effect.
1: The point is well taken, That would add another factor, however, and this is a, a structural issue of enormous importance, if I may. And that is is, as apparent and evident, the GOP does not shun those to their right, no matter if they're QAnon supporters or oath keepers, three percenters, stand by proud boys, as Mr. Trump (laughs) said during the debate with Mr. Biden in the fall of 2020. And Right now, as you know, there's this battle as to whether or not they're going to sideline the QAnon sympathizer, Congresswoman Marjorie Greene, who had a an encouraging phone call from the former president, Mr. Trump, just a few days ago. And if I were a betting man, I would bet that she will keep her seat on the Education and Labor Committee, despite protestations coming from different Republican and Democratic circles. By way of contrast, the Democratic Party ignores, if not undermines, those to their left. And that suggests that the Democratic Party is still trying to carry out the playbook of the late uh, historian and uh, JFK acolyte Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who in his book, In the Height of the Cold War, The Vital Center, suggested that Republicans should ignore those to their right, the Democrats should ignore those to their left, And just go down that highway of the center. Well, of course, the Democrats have got their end of the bargain. Republicans, of course, uh, have reneged. And that's one of the reasons why we're in this dilemma right now, where we can credibly speculate on a party that was engaged in an insurrection making a comeback in 2022. Because make no mistake, I think that a further repertorial investigation will show much more complicity of the Republican Party, qua Republican Party, in the seditionist events of January 6th. We already know about the participation of Congressman Mo Brooks of Alabama and Andy Biggs of Arizona and Paul Gosar of Arizona. We know about all the Republican legislators and uh, other politicos arrested in the Capitol on January 6th. And with regard to funding, uh, I find that we, we're only beginning to learn that, for example, the heiress to the fortune created by Publix supermarkets, P-U-B-L-I-X, which is uh, ever-present in the South, was a major supporter of the Stop the Steal movement. And we already know from past investigations about the Mercers and their supporting for the uh, ultra right. But I think that in terms of third parties, we can only encourage Mr. Trump to embark upon forming a third party, the Patriot Party. Our strategic objective should be to foment a split in the ranks of the Republican Party. It seems to me that in terms of guaranteeing the health and well-being of the masses of people in the United States, Fomenting a split in the Republican Party is a conditioned precedent uh, uh, to that. And I would also say not only the health in the general sense, but perhaps in the literal sense, because I think your audience should take seriously the remarks a few days ago of Speaker Nancy Pelosi with her ominous references to the enemy within, speaking of her colleagues in the Republican Party in the Congress, some of whom have tried to smuggle guns onto the floor of the House, for reasons that remain unclear, uh, you may know that the incoming Congresswoman from St. Louis in the Congressional Black Caucus, Cori Bush, has asked that her office be removed from proximity to that of Congresswoman Taylor Green of Georgia because of discomfort of her team and her staff. We know that in the run-up to January 6th, interestingly enough, the panic buttons in the offices of Yana Presley, the black congresswoman from Boston, and Jamal Bowman, the incoming black congressman from the Bronx, were stripped out mysteriously for whatever reason. And so there is reason to suspect that the Republican Party has not only become a refuge for white supremacists and and neo-Nazis, which of course was the testament the words of Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, who argued just a few days ago that this year's Republican caucus is far to the right of last term's Republican Party caucus, believe it or not. And so it seems that the United States is barreling down a very dangerous highway uh, with the destination where we're headed being unclear, but certainly it seems as of today, we're headed for trouble. I don't
0: think either of us are going to come up with the magic solution here. Um, but I think it's important to know that this mass basis for fascism ain't new. Uh, I'm watching, I've am watching. i been interviewing uh, Matt Trinauer, who was the director of this series, The Reagans, on Showtime. Um, people should watch my interviews with him and try to watch the series. Uh, you know, Reaganism wasn't so different than Trumpism. The amount of racism, the support for the same kind of make America great again, chauvinist, fascist ideas, uh, and Reagan won on a landslide more or less. Uh, that, that, that social basis for that far-right politics, uh, is, is as you've pointed out many times, you know, this is you can, it's a line you can draw from the slave system going forward. And we got to come, you know, really face up to to that. Uh, but I also think it's important that it's not monolithic. Uh, if you look at Trump support, uh, it, it, there's various segments of that Trump support, including workers who actually voted for Obama in 08 and then later voted for Trump. You have hardcore racists and fascists. You have evangelicals, uh, some of whom uh, got disillusioned with Trump by the end, and others who believed Trump was chosen by God. Uh, the, the, anyway, it's, it's not monolithic, and how we uh, approach it, uh, which I just personally, just to throw some things out there just near the end to talk about, I think, number one, uh, we need to— Trump and other uh, of his associates need to be charged criminally with sedition and treason. It's not enough to have some censure in the Senate, and the impeachment, he's not going to get convicted there anyway, probably. But what he did, what he and others, including people in Congress, did was sedition and treason, and it's it's somewhat akin to the war crimes of Bush and Cheney that Obama should have charged them with and, and I think would have helped uh, bury the Republican Party for a while. Um, same thing goes now. And, and if they don't charge Trump and some of these people in Congress and outside Congress, like Steve Bannon and others, with sedition and treason, it's a real sign of the weakness of the liberal elites. On the other hand, finance capital, all they care about is they want to show stability. So charging these guys ain't going to look like stability. So even in the press now, and, and the Democratic Party too, like all the focus is on uh, conviction in the Senate. When I'm with you, I, I, they, I don't think I don't want them to convict him in the Senate if it precludes him from running again. We want him to run again. On a third party. <laughs> for, for the reasons you gave. Well, either way, third party or even if he runs in the Republican Party, there'll be a war because they're going to be afraid they're going to see another Georgia in the elections. So a, a lot of the uh, normal— Republican funders are not going to want another four years of Trump, even though they enriched themselves during the uh, four they had. But I don't think they want the crazy man back. But I agree with you. Third party would be would be better. Uh, anyway, the the, the political system really is quite chaotic. It's very dangerous. Um, and so I, I guess, well, we're already getting close to an hour here. So we'll do another session maybe next week where we talk about just what the heck to expect from the Biden administration. Um, But just to end up, go ahead, last comment.
1: Yeah. Just a few comments. One, I agree wholeheartedly we need criminal charges against all the seditionists and insurrectionists, not least because it introduced further strains in the Republican Party, which hopefully will help to foment the split. Second of all, by any means necessary, up to and including getting rid of the filibuster, we really need D.C. statehood that will introduce two more senators uh, who will be to the left of anybody in the U.S. Senate today, which will further weaken the Republican Party caucus. With regard to this question of fascism, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that one way to describe the United States uh, for a good deal of its history is that There was a kind of proto-fascism directed against black people, indigenous people and people of color in general, with many others exempted. And it seems inevitable that with the coming of desegregation and a kind of move away from the more egregious aspects of that proto-fascism, that a January 6th would erupt with the Congress, which after all was behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, would be attacked as it was. And then with regard to Ronald Wilson Reagan, obviously uh, he bears a certain amount of responsibility and complicity, not least because of his now notorious speech in August 1980 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, the home of the site where the civil rights workers were slain in 1964, with him preaching obliquely and sometimes obviously and explicitly about states' rights and letting Mississippi do its dirty business without the interference from Washington. And of course, Mississippi certainly proceeded to do so. So hopefully uh, when we talk about the Republican Party being brought to account not only in terms of the courts for sedition and insurrection, but also at the ballot box where they'll force be forced to engage with the so-called patriot party of one Donald John Trump, uh, hopefully that'll bring them to account.
0: And uh, I, I don't. I know we can't get into this right now, but if people at state levels can't deal with the amount of legislatures that are in the hands of the far right, uh, I, I don't know how you begin to deal with this issue of the fascization of America, because so much of this is happening out of state legislatures. And the Republicans, in spite of, you know, four years of insanity with Trump, uh, actually you know what are they? they picked up state legislatures, and they picked up house seats and
1: well speaking to you from the state of Texas i can only say here here <laughs> all right well we'll do this again soon thanks a lot joe thank you good luck
0: and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news and please don't forget the donate button at the top of the web page